God your Father in heaven's standard is just that you're growing. Now, some of you who really get tied in knots about this, then you think, then you think, well, have a, am I growing? I'm not growing. There's no way I'm growing. I can't imagine there's any way that I'm growing. And then I say, sometimes you just need to listen to other people's perspective rather than your own, the voices in your own head. <laughs> you know? <laughs> you should ask somebody, do you think I'm growing? And think, you should be thinking over not, over not just a week or a day or the last four hours, you should be thinking over a year and two years and five years and ten years. And, you know, it's just hard for us to accept the fact that the Holy Spirit works slower in us than we think He should. It's just really hard for us to accept that. We are, you know, we're just impatient with God about our spiritual progress. And so I'm saying this just as a help and encouragement. Like, many of you here, the majority of you, you're growing. God's grace is working in you. Just as He's promised to do. It's not happening as fast as you want. But even if it was happening as fast as you want, do you really think you would now possess the full also still feel the pangs of sin that remains? You know, And so, you do, Spurgeon said, for every look at yourself, take ten looks at Christ. You really can have real gospel rest with your sanctification and you can also be striving and growing at the same time. And so, um, all right, that was for free. Now this is going to cost you. Genesis chapter 6, beginning in verse 9. By the way, would you pray for me this week? I am, uh, I'm speaking at a conference on, and my task is to speak about counseling and the care and cure of souls. And God has given me some things to say about that. But I'm also just very weak. So would you just pray that God would make something both of this now and, and of that this week. Genesis chapter 6, beginning in verse... We really should just beginning at the first, at the first verse, because there are a few things I want to say in the first few verses before we get into this. When man began to multiply on the face of the land, and daughters were born to them, the sons of God saw that the daughters of man were attractive... And they took as their wives any they chose. Then the Lord said, My spirit shall not abide in man forever, for he is flesh. His days shall be 120 years. The Nephilim were on the earth in those days, and also afterward, when the sons of God came in to the daughters of man, and they bore children to them. These were the mighty men who were of old, the men of renown. The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. By the way, if you ever wanted to know if mental illness in a biblical sense was real, that like our minds were messed up, here's a great verse for you. <laughs> you know, you ever thought about this? Now, I'm using mental illness not like the world uses mental illness meaning everything's not medical that we call medical when we think about mental illness. But look at this. Just think about this. Of course our thoughts and minds are messed up. 
Of course our mental state is messed up. That should not surprise us at all. The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And the Lord was sorry that He had made man on the earth and it grieved Him to His heart. So the Lord said, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land, man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heavens, for I am sorry that I have made them. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. Now these are the generations of Noah. Noah was a righteous man, blameless in his generation. Noah walked with God. Three just beautiful statements about Noah. And Noah had three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Now the earth was corrupt in God's sight, and the earth was filled with violence. And God saw the earth, and behold, it was corrupt. For all flesh had corrupted their way on the earth. And God said to Noah, I have determined to make an end of all flesh, for the earth is filled with violence through them. Behold, I will destroy them with the earth. Make yourself an ark of gopher wood. Make rooms in the ark and cover it inside and out with pitch. This is how you're to make it. The length of the ark, 300 cubits. Its breadth, 50 cubits. Its height, 30 cubits. Make a roof for the ark and finish it to a cubit above and set the door of the ark in its side. Make it with lower, second, and third decks. For behold... I will bring a flood of waters upon the earth to destroy all flesh in which is the breath of life under heaven. Everything that is on the earth shall die. But I will establish my covenant with you and you shall come into the ark. You, your sons, your wife, and your sons' wives with you. And of every living thing of all flesh, You shall bring two of every sort into the ark to keep them alive with you. They shall be male and female. Of the birds according to their kinds, and of the animals according to their kinds. Of every creeping thing of the ground according to its kind. Two of every sort shall come come into you to keep them alive. Also, take with you every sort of food that is eaten. Store it up. It shall serve as food for you and for them. Noah did this. He did all that God commanded him. Then the Lord said to Noah, Go into the ark, you and all your household, for I have seen that you are righteous before me in this generation. Take with you seven pairs of all clean animals, the male and his mate, and a pair of the animals that are not clean, the male and his mate, and seven pairs of the birds of the heavens also, male and female, to keep their offspring alive on the face of all the earth. For in seven days I will send rain on the earth, forty days and forty nights, and every living thing that I have made I will blot out from the face of the ground. And Noah did all that the Lord had commanded him. Noah was six hundred years old when the flood of waters came upon the earth. And Noah and his sons and his wife and his sons' wives with him went into the ark to escape the waters of the flood of clean animals and of animals that are not clean, and of birds and of everything that creeps on the ground, two and two, male and female, went into the ark with Noah as God commanded Noah. And after seven days, the waters of the flood came upon the earth. In the 600th year of Noah's life, in the second month, on the 17th day of the month, on the day all the fountains of the great deep burst forth, and the windows of the heavens were opened, and rain fell upon the earth 40 days and 40 nights. On the very same day, Noah and his sons, Shem, 
and Ham and Japheth and Noah's wife and the three wives of his sons with them entered the ark. And they and every beast according to its kind and all the livestock according to their kinds and every creeping thing that creeps on the earth according to its kind and every bird according to its kind, every winged creature. They went into the ark with Noah, two and two of all flesh in which there was the breath of life. And those that entered, male and female, of all flesh, went in as God commanded him, and the Lord shut him in. The flood continued 40 days on the earth. The waters increased, bore up the ark, and it rose high above the earth. The waters prevailed and increased greatly on the earth, and the ark floated on the face of the waters. The waters prevailed so mightily on the earth that all the high mountains under the whole heaven were covered. The waters prevailed above the mountains covering them 15 cubits deep. And all flesh died that moved on the earth. Birds, livestock, beasts, all swarming creatures that swarm on the earth and all mankind. Everything on the dry land and whose nostrils was the breath of life died. He blotted out every living thing that was on the face of the ground. Man and animals, creeping things, and birds of the heavens, they were blotted out from the earth. Only Noah was left and those who were with him in the ark and the waters prevailed on the earth 150 days. This is the word of the Lord. Father, by your spirit and your sufficient grace, we pray that you would prevail with us in power, warning us of judgment by fire, warning us um, of life eternal, judgment to come, of the reality of meeting our Maker, of the need of righteousness, of favor in your sight, prevail in our hearts that we might know you, love you, and partake of the ark of salvation that is Christ our Lord. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. I want to make a couple notes quickly. Um, The 120 years in verse 3 of chapter 6 is not that men will live 120 years, it's 120 years until the flood. this 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 is the warning time of the time before uh, the rain would come. And, and now there's another point here that I want to make about that because every mocker and like your professors over at Bloomington just always will find the stupidest thing to try to discount Scripture. And this is one of the points where they do it. They say, well, your pastor said it was going to be 120 years, but he's an idiot. Let me show you how he's an idiot. Look at, look at verse... Um, 32 of chapter 5. After Noah was 500 years old, Noah fathered Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Okay? So he's 500 years old. Now, flip back over to verse 6. Noah was 600 years old when the flood of waters came upon the earth. So there's 100 years um, from the time that Noah's 500 to 600. But your pastor, he said there was 120 years before the flood would start. And you just go, I don't know, I just throw my hands up in the air and I just go, it's just silly. Right? Like, so when God says that Noah's 500 years old, can't he just use a generalization? If he was 480 years old, couldn't you find yourself saying, Noah's about 500 years old? You know, it's just stupid stuff that they constantly want to mock you because they love their sin and they hate God and they're constantly trying to find a way to discount this or that passage of Scripture. So, you just need to know that it's just not unreal. We round things all the time. 
It's just not unreasonable at all. Okay? Now, uh, just a quick comment. God was sorry, grieved to his heart that he made man on the earth. You know, the, the language is like God is repenting. He's repenting. He has, he's just grieved to his heart that man has become so corrupt and so wicked and so violent and so anti-God's image and likeness that he made man to be. And I have no problem with God actually experiencing real grief. There is a theology out there that like God does it just is like completely um, unemotive and his unchangeableness doesn't allow him to experience any of the reality of what emotion is. And uh, trust me, when you go to those churches, you can tell they believe that because they are so dry and unaffected by everything. Um, and, uh, and so... I, But it's not that God is so grieved that somehow he also isn't happy in himself. But he is at the same time grieved by the wickedness of men. And this is, when you're trying to understand the nature of God with these things, um, it's it's like an infinite beauty of complexities that he possesses with himself that's difficult for us to get our mind around, but I'm just really comfortable with that, and I think you should be too. So, God is grieved. He was pleased with this very good creation. He is extremely displeased and full of wrath. And at this point, He is done. He is done. As patient and merciful as He might be, um, He is done. This is... When you think about the flood, you, ha- you have to realize the flood is the most catastrophic event in the history of the world, changing the face of the world as we know it. You live on a different world now than the world was before the flood. And uh, some of the original creation beauty of the world is gone. It is different now. How is it different? Well, we don't know every way that it's different, but it is, it is different now. What the text tells us of things like the, uh, the great deep burst open, well, what is that? Right? That's something changed about the nature of the earth. Water from within and water from the heavens. Um, it's a very different environment now. You're talking about a, a level of cataclysmic, just world-changing um, you know, it's like scientists know that in history there has been cataclysmic events. They see it. They will never attribute it to Noah's flood, to the flood that God brought upon Noah, because that would cause them to have to, to deal with the judgment of God. You know, they always have some cataclysmic event. They can see the evidences of it. They know, but they will never give glory to God or submit to Him that it actually was Noah's flood. But we have every reason to think that much of this has to do with the flood. You know, we have, you know, this is like why you find fish on mountains in Wyoming. You know, um, fish fossils and such things. This is why uh, you have 
um, the kinds of mountain ranges and valleys and depths that we have. Um, that we don't know how high exactly the mountains were. Don't you? You, you always want to think it was all the same, but we just don't know. You know, it's like was the water over Mount Everest? Well, if Mount Everest existed then as it exists now, then yes. If not, then it wouldn't have to be. But the world is different. It's different. This is why we have rock layers laid down by water. And um, it's not all because it happened slowly over three and a half billion years. Like it's a catastrophic, world-changing event. You know, this is why we have like the fossil record the way it is. Because the flood wiped everything out and buried it. So there's a lot of things that um, people use to discount the timelines of Scripture, to discount what God says. Um, but the reality is, if we actually just consider the implications of the flood, it deals with a lot of these kinds of things, right? You know, it's, it, <clears throat> everybody wants to say, well, what about the dinosaurs? I just don't have any problem with dinosaurs being on the ark. I just, it's just not a shocking thing to me, you know? Well, they, they died out. They died out in the flood like everything else, and then probably died in the post-flood world, um, you know, the Bible doesn't speak real specifically about every detail, but it's like, I just don't have a problem with that. Not at all. Um, so, what you have to understand about the flood is it's factual, real history. It's factual, real history. The reason that man puts so much effort, first of all, why does man put so much effort into discounting the Bible? into turning everything into myth and legend. Why? Why so, why so much effort? There has never been as much effort for any other religious text in the history of the world that man has put so much work to seek to discount and to relegate to the level of myth as your Bible. Why? Because the Bible, the Bible is true. And we know that if we... Uh, deal with it as truth. We have to deal with the judgment of God and we have to deal with our own sins, which we love. And so um, the flood is often relegated to, I don't know, it's like, a, it's like a tale that tells us things. But what would the tale even tell us if it wasn't true? If it was a myth about the whole world flooding and people dying... What lesson would be gained from it <laughs> that's different than what the truth actually is? That there is a judgment of, by Almighty God on the wickedness of men. I mean, what would, what would a myth trying to be to communicate? Well, maybe if you're lucky, you can be the one family that isn't wiped out in the judgment of God. Like what? It's repeated throughout the Old Testament record that there was a flood that wiped out the earth and it's used as an example of the judgment of God. 
It's repeated throughout the New Testament. Jesus, Jesus very specifically speaks of the flood in very real historical terms. You know, one example, I'll just read to you quickly in Matthew um, chapter 22. Matthew, not 22, sorry, Matthew chapter 24. Speaking of the coming of the Son of Man. This is Jesus. For as were the days of Noah, you know, those fake fictional days, as those fake fictional fable mythological days were in the days of Noah, there's also going to be some fake fictional mythological fable-like days in the future. For as were the days of Noah, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. For as in those days before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage. And they were just carrying on with life. You know? Not really giving heed to reality. Just carrying on in worldly living. We're eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage until the day when Noah entered the ark. And they were unaware until the flood came and swept them all away. So will be the coming of the Son of Man. Jesus roots this in factual, real history bound up with His return in glory to conquer and judge the earth and to save His people. So if the flood didn't happen as Scripture tells us it happened, Jesus is a liar, the Gospel isn't true, we're wasting our time. The apostles speak about the flood. It bears itself out further through the New Testament uh, record. Speaking of the flood is real factual history. Peter does this multiple times. Chapter 2, verse 5 of 2 Peter. If he did not spare the ancient world, but preserved Noah, a herald of righteousness, with seven others, when he brought a flood upon the world of the ungodly. So either Peter's a liar and your Bible's not true and we're wasting our time, or it really happened. And God is as He really is. And we must deal with Him. And He must deal with us. In 2 Peter chapter 3, just as Jesus used the flood as the ancient pattern of the judgment of God that's going to come upon the world in the future, this is now the second letter that I'm writing to you, beloved. In both of them, I'm stirring up your sincere mind by way of reminder that you should remember the predictions of the holy prophets and the commandment of the Lord and Savior through your apostles. See, the apostle Peter is doing what I'm doing. He's saying Jesus spoke of this. The other apostles spoke of this to build his case of the truthfulness of what he's saying that you should remember the predictions of the holy prophets and the commandment of the Lord and Savior through your apostles. Knowing this, first of all, that scoffers will come in the last days with scoffing, following their own sinful desires. They will say, where is the promise of His coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all things are continuing as they were from the beginning of creation. For they deliberately See the intentionality of man's rebellion. God, God constantly calls men to account for the deliberate rebellion against God. Knowing this, first of all, that scoffers will come in the last days with scoffing, 
following their own sinful desires. You see, when I say it's because men hate God and love their sin, this is just what Scripture says. I didn't just make those things up. They will say, where is the promise of His coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all things are continuing as they were from the beginning of creation. For they deliberately overlooked this fact that the heavens existed long ago. The earth was formed out of water and through water by the Word of God, and that by means of this... of by means of these, the world that then existed was deluged with water and perished. It's the devil. That's true. We are gonna saints are gonna go marching in. <coughs> right out of that ark and right into glory, amen. But by the same word, the heavens and earth that now exist are stored up for fire, being kept until the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. The flood is the pattern of future judgment. Jesus makes it clear. The apostles make it clear. And if it's not just as the Bible says it is, then we're all wasting our time. But of course, men want nothing to do with the reality of the judgment of God. They can't do anything about it. But they will do everything to suppress its, suppress the truth and unrighteousness to deny its reality. To mock it and scorn it. Because they think in the last they will escape their Maker. They think that in the last they will forever be able to have their sin which they love. They think in the last that their their rebellion will actually win against God Almighty. It's just an absolute fool's errand that the ungodly give themselves to for their whole lives and on into eternity thinking they will win or persuade God on their account. And so they mock and ridicule and deny and you know seek to undermine the judgment of God and um, in some way, when you look at how much the church has completely denied the judgment of God from reality, and just constantly tells everybody, everything is fine, everything is okay, everything's just, everything's just going to be fine, it's all, all going to be fine, you know, everybody's fine. And they're not just, they're not saying that Uh, to the saints, they're saying that to everyone. They're saying that to those who hate God. Everything's just going to be fine. It's all going to be okay. You know? And and so we have no basis to really understand reality anymore because we've so far denied the judgment of God, which is like the starting fundamental like principle that we have to come to grips with uh, when we are dealing with reality. That God is holy and man is wicked, and what is God to do with us but judge us? That's the most foundational truth that we all have to come to grips with to understand anything anymore. Because if there's no judgment of God, then, then what, is, what are His words? What is His law? What account is there that we must give to actually obey them or keep them? No longer does the law of God matter. 
And no longer is there any mercy or need for salvation or need of Jesus Christ, the Lord and Savior of the world. There's nothing left. Right? This is the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of all wisdom. It starts here. If we don't have this, there is no true knowledge. If we don't have this, there is no wisdom. And so, if we skip over this, everything falls in a massive domino effect until Christianity just means is meaningless. Except to just say, you know, to have the to bless the animals during your church services. That's happening somewhere in Bloomington today, probably, I'm sure. And this flood is global. It was worldwide. You know, one of the main things. Everybody just went, well, it was just a local flood. Just a local flood. Except there, in the ancient world, there's, there's cultures preserving stories of the flood everywhere. You know, it's um, like men will just do anything they can to discount and rebel against God. They will say anything they can. So when Scripture says... When Scripture actually goes out of its way to say the waters prevailed and increased greatly on the earth and the ark floated on the face of the waters and the waters prevailed so mightily on the earth that all the high mountains under the whole heaven were covered. The waters prevailed above the mountains covering them 15 cubits Right? There's just no way that's true. There's no way that's true. Just a local flood. It was global in the minds of the idiots who lived over in the ancient Near East area. Because it was big to them. They felt like it must have been global. Mock the mockers, I say. It's one of the prophetic techniques for persuasion. You know, we, we, we kind of live in an interesting day because probably a lot of you have actually been to the ark over in, um, you know, Answers in Genesis. By the way, you want to hear a cool side story that has nothing to do with any of this? I, when you're over at the Creation Museum and you see the T-Rex and you see the Stegosaurus, I moved them in there. Hauled them down the highway, moved them into the Creation Museum, got them in there back before uh, we went on a, we actually had went on a, college missions trip to just go down there for several days. They had just drywalled that whole, that whole facility. So I was in there when it was all empty and just, it had just been drywalled. It was just a dusty mess. So our job was actually just to go sweep the whole facility clean so that they could then proceed. And one of the things we had to do was um, where the warehouse that Answers in Genesis was using at the time 
before it all moved over to you know its current location. They had, I mean, the dinosaurs were all over there in the warehouse and stuff. But we had to move those in before everything else was built into the museum, because then there wouldn't be any way to actually move them around. So just want you to know, I did that. And so all flesh perishes in the flood, except Noah. Noah had Christian faith. It's, 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 <laughs> Noah's faith is, is, in some ways, really remarkable. And in uh, uh, other ways, it's just Christian faith. It's just Christian faith. His, his faith, what's said repeatedly, Noah did all that God commanded him to do. That's what a Christian does. Noah... You know, a Christian just lives a life in obedience to God's commandments. And so, you know, it's like, um, get married, have kids. That's what a Christian does. So, these kinds of, like all the commandments of God, you just, you you do, it's like, love the church of Jesus Christ. This is what a Christian does. So, but in, in, in other ways, it's pretty remarkable because you just think, um, he is building a ginormous ark day in and day out for a long time. And in the face of just awful wickedness everywhere. And here's Noah standing alone. Literally. Standing alone. One family that will be saved. And it's encouraging because, in some ways because there's a sense in, as a Christian today where if you're trying to actually be godly as a family, you will stand alone in your family, like your extended family. They will constantly be on you about everything that is wrong with what you're doing. But you... But just keep doing Christian things. Noah stood alone. As a church, everybody's pressing about how to disobey God on everything. Those who profess to faith, faith in Christ are constantly telling the church things that are horrible things that will lead them into rebellion and harm their families and harm their children. And... Stand alone. Be prepared to stand alone. It's one of the reasons I love J.C. Ryle. His the biography that was written about him was um, prepared to stand alone. You know, J.C. Ryle is a um, Anglican bishop, and uh, you know, 140 years ago ish, and he was constantly fighting the Anglican Church to be faithful to the gospel. And really, his whole testimony is standing alone in the Anglican church to be faithful to the gospel of which they absolutely, as a, as, as a whole, would not do. Be prepared to stand alone. Noah's standing alone. And so his faith really is remarkable because how quickly and fickle are we to just like, oh, okay, if that's going to upset, you know, it's going to upset my kids. 
it's going to upset the apple cart with my family, if it's going to, if it's, it's going to make us look like not reputable in Bloomington and look like a church that isn't respectable here, how quick we are to just like either, either compromise or just completely despair that we're all alone. And I want to encourage you, you can look to men like Noah in Scripture and be encouraged. He was building a giant boat. Do you know how much of a clown he looked like? This is why like, I just have no patience for you who love academia so much it just corrupts your whole doctrine. Because you're dying for the respect of academics. You're dying for the respect of to, 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 to think what you think is. And this is like, most grad students do not do well spiritually. They just don't. My experience in Bloomington, there's like a few who have done well. And they don't do well here. Because they're so corrupted by academia and, and, and by a longing to make sure that they are respectable. And so it, it ends up doing crazy things to the Gospel. Like, I mean, should we really think that, do we really have to think the creation account happened just like it said? Do we really have to think such things? Because if we think such things, it's like, it's like unbelievers write us off before we even have a chance to explain the Gospel to them. And it's just like, I just tell every, every, every grad student who comes and tells me these things, I just say, like, you believe in a crucified Messiah. Do you want to get crazy? You believe in a Savior of the world who died on a cross. Like, you believe foolish things. Look like a fool. Look like a madman sometimes. Don't just tell them the Bible's creation account happened just like it did. Tell them they have to repent of their sins or they're going to die and face the judgment of God and Christ died for them. Look like a fool. That's what Christian faith does in the face of great violence and wickedness and scorn and mockery. what righteousness looks like. You, you just obey the commandments of God. You say people won't listen if you speak of the judgment of God by fire and water. Maybe Noah should have just softened the message. Maybe Noah should have just built a smaller boat so that people wouldn't think it was all going to be as bad as it really was. Maybe Noah should not have lived in reality. Maybe Noah shouldn't have had faith. Maybe he shouldn't have actually obeyed the commandments of God.
I always wonder how these moments show up on the recording. Everything is just okay, and it's all fine, and there needs to be no discipline and no pain and no suffering and no anything. God's just okay with everything. And let's be honest, parents. You do not prepare your children for the judgment of God by refusing faithful discipline to them. You don't. And I'm going to say something that's going to shock you. That doesn't shock you. But you cannot write me off when I say things that shock you. You cannot write me off. Read the Bible. When Jesus says things that shock you, understand it's meant to be useful for your faith. So do not write me off. It won't go well for you. It just won't go well for you. Jesus says things, right? Like, Better for a millstone to be hung around the neck and cause one of these little ones to stumble? Have you thought about how shocking that is? Here's what you need to understand, parents. If you refuse to discipline your children, you might as well throw them off the ark into the water. (coughs) If you refuse to faithfully discipline their children, you might as well throw them off the ark into the water. Because you are setting them up to perish in the judgment of God. You refuse to believe that discipline is supposed to be both painful and gentle. You refuse to believe that. And yet, this is how God's discipline works in Scripture forever on every page. It is both painful and gentle. And it is full of love in both when it is for salvation and for the church. Of course, it is no longer the love of God when all the ungodly perish in the water and in the fire. It is full of wrath. Saving love, at least. And if as a church we don't discipline one another and instruct one another in our effort to persevere in the faith. We do not prepare anyone for the judgment of God. What I want for every single one of you who are here is to be found standing in the assembly of the righteous and not driven away like chafe in the wind like the wicked will be when they will not stand before his judgment.
now. Look back at chapter 7, verse 1. Then the Lord said to Noah, Go into the ark, you and all your household, for I have seen that you are righteous before me in this generation. Now, that verse was a real comfort to me as I read it this week. Look at it again. It struck me in a way that it never had before. Go into the ark, you and all your household. For I have seen that you are righteous before me in this generation. Some of you think that because I reprove and rebuke and exhort in preaching that my goal is to hold you down under under some thumb that, I don't know, always makes you feel guilty or something. It's just discipline. It's just discipline. It's just one of the mechanisms God's given for your growth, right? But look at that verse. God sees your righteousness. If you're trusting Jesus, God sees your righteousness. He sees that you're righteous in this generation. That's just so encouraging to me, you know? And I thought to myself, I thought to myself, that just is so good for my heart because some of you think that my life is full of some weird perfect righteousness every week, but, and I can't convince you it's not for some reason try to even sin in preaching and you still don't believe it. God saw, God sees your righteousness in this generation. And I thought, God could have just nitpicked Noah's failings. And then I thought, I just want to be a person who actually sees the righteousness of the saints. Are you a person who sees the righteousness of your brothers and sisters in Christ? Are you a person who only sees their unrighteousness? I want, like, what a gift you give to people when you see their righteousness. This morning, my brother um, from Alabama is he's probably at our house already. Is driving up here with his two boys, wife and daughter, had to stay home, and they're pregnant with their fourth, and so she's kind of in the middle of that. But he he came up to Lafayette to visit mom and dad, and is dropping by our house to stay for a day. And and I just thought I was driving to church this morning. I was thinking. I'm just so proud of him. Like, when I was that age and had two boys, I would have never packed up and driven from Birmingham, Alabama to Lafayette, Indiana and made a road trip by myself. I just never would have done that. Like, I'm pretty adventurous, but 
I ain't good enough a dad for that. I said, I'm so proud of him. And I want us to be a people who are actually like God in this, that actually where there's righteousness, not just justifying righteousness, though that is certainly important that we encourage one another in our justification when it's there and we can't see it, but also in our sanctified righteousness, real righteousness, real godly things. I don't want us to be a church that's always, the cup is half empty when it comes to one another's sanctification. Where there's real righteousness, it should be encouraged and honored. You should see it and encourage one another's that you actually are the people on the ark of salvation, which is Jesus Christ, who died, who was buried, and who was raised, and who is the advocate, Jesus Christ, the righteous. Stand with me for prayer. Oh God, You are the God of our righteousness. You're the God who justifies us on the basis of Christ. You're the God who sanctifies us in righteousness. You are the God who will glorify us in the fullness of righteousness. I pray that the unrighteous would find righteousness in Christ and flee the judgment to come. I pray for the saints to be encouraged that By the blood of Christ, they have walked onto the ark of salvation. And I pray that we would have Noah's faith to obey all that You command us. Not listen to deceivers and liars, but to listen to our God and Father who always tells us what is true and right and good and to walk humbly before You. Fleeing the judgment to come. Clinging to Christ with all our hearts. We have found favor in Your sight. All who are trusting in You, You have shown us grace. And grace upon grace. And we thank You in Jesus' name. Amen.